Hearing the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, Ambassador Nichols, Ambassador Sison, congratulations on your nominations. And thank you for your willingness to continue serving our country as well as your families. Uh, we understand uh, that it is um, a sacrifice of all of those who are part of the family in, in terms of this continuing service, so we appreciate that as well. Uh, at this pivotal moment for our foreign policy in the State Department, uh, I'm, I'm heartened that President Biden has nominated individuals to two critical positions. Um, I believe that your experience and commitment will be assets to the department and critical in the defense of our interests and values. I understand that the senator from Rhode Island uh, will be introducing uh, Ambassador Nichols this morning, and that the senator from Maryland, a member of this committee, will be introducing Ambassador Sison. I don't see uh, uh, Ambassador Whitehouse yet. I know he's a very busy in judiciary affairs, so he probably is on his way here. Uh, so let's recognize uh, Senator Van Hollen first for an introduction. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, and uh, congratulations to, to both the nominees. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Risch, uh, colleagues, uh, thank you for the opportunity to introduce to you uh, the President's nominee to serve as our next Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizational Affairs, uh, Ambassador Michelle Sisson. And in this nomination, President Biden has not only selected a nominee with impeccable credentials, unimpeachable character, and a deep knowledge of foreign policy. He has also wisely selected a longtime Marylander. Uh, I had met Ambassador Sisson before, uh, but my conversation with her yesterday makes me even more confident that she has the knowledge and experience we need at this critical moment in our history. President Biden is determined to renew American engagement around the world and leadership in international organizations. And if confirmed, I am confident Ambassador Sisson will faithfully help achieve this goal. Ambassador Sisson has had a distinguished career at the highest levels of the United States Foreign Service. Her experience spans nearly four decades and six presidents. She has served as our ambassador four times to different places, first to the UAE, then to Lebanon, then to Sri Lanka and the Maldives, and most recently to Haiti, a post she was appointed to in 2018 and a post which brought her full circle from her first diplomatic position as the human rights officer at Embassy Port-au-Prince in 1982. Throughout her 39 years at the forefront of U.S. diplomacy, she has served in a variety of roles that have taken her across the world, representing our nation's interests in West Africa, South Asia, and elsewhere. She also spent four years as the United States Deputy Representative to the United Nations from 2014 to 2018, a position that makes her ideally prepared for this new post. She also has a long track record of collaborating with UN peacekeepers and has gained a firsthand knowledge of the UN entities responsible for development, humanitarian relief, and human rights in the field. Her superb talents have been recognized by our country many times. She's decorated with numerous awards for her service, including superior honor awards, the ambassadorial level awards for her contributions to counterproliferation and combating trafficking in persons, and she has received both a Distinguished Service Award and the Presidential Rank Award of Meritorious Service. 
Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, I could go on, but it would consume the entire hearing. So let me end with this. I grew up in a Foreign Service family and lived in some of the countries where Ambassador Sisson has served. I know a good diplomat when I see one, and Ambassador Sisson fits the bill. She exemplifies the very best of what it means to serve our country as a career Foreign Service officer. I urge the committee to support her nomination. Thank you, uh, Senator Van Hollen. And after that, sterling recommendation. Uh, Ambassador, maybe you should just rest your case. Uh, but we're not going to let you off that easy. Uh, at any event, thank you, Senator Van Hollen. I understand that Senator Whitehouse is with us virtually. I am, Chairman. Please proceed. Welcome. Thank you, uh, Chairman Menendez, and thank you, Ranking Member Risch, for welcoming me to your committee today. Um, like Senator Van Hollen, I come from a Foreign Service family. I'm the black sheep in a family of a grandfather, father, uncle, and cousin who were all Foreign Service officers. So it gives me particular pleasure to uh, be here to recommend a career Foreign Service officer and a native Rhode Islander, Brian Nichols, uh, as the uh, nominee for Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs. Um, my father served for decades, uh, not exactly on the Champagne circuit, uh, but in countries embroiled in conflict and upheaval, uh, where the comforts and security of America often felt very far away. But he always felt he was doing rewarding and deeply important work. Uh, Brian Nichols has had a similar career, serving in challenging State Department roles in South and Central America, Southeast Asia, and Africa. He has won department honors for his contributions to state's trade development mission and helped lead the department's international narcotics and law enforcement work. Um, he has been our United States ambassador to both Peru and uh, Zimbabwe, a country emerging from decades of dictatorial rule and dire economic hardship. So he knows the ropes and he has skills developed in our small, tight-knit and diverse state. Um, Rhode Islanders have, I think, a unusual ability to reach beyond seeming difference and even simmering enmity to find shared values and common humanity. And Ambassador Nichols is a shining example of that skill. Building consensus is as simple, he says, as understanding people, a very Rhode Island quality, a very diplomatic quality, and one which Ambassador Nichols has demonstrated throughout his distinguished career. I'm confident that if we confirm his nomination, he will serve all Americans well and make us proud. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Whitehouse, for your introduction of Ambassador Nichols. Uh, Ambassador Nichols, your nomination comes at a time when the Western Hemisphere is reeling under a cascade of challenges. The devastation wrought by COVID-19, the fraying of democratic consensus, major migration crises, and a void of four years of American absence that China is seeking to fill. The task at hand is immense. With death rates among the highest in the world, COVID-19 is inflicting a terrible toll on the hemisphere, and the United States has to step up. As we accumulate surplus vaccines, we must prioritize vaccine access for countries in the hemisphere as part of our global efforts to ensure that the most vulnerable are vaccinated. 
And as the region's economic health has a direct impact on the United States, we have to take bold steps to facilitate its recovery. That's why this committee voted to authorize a capital increase for the Inter-American Development Bank last month. Additionally, Latin America is facing the recurrence of flawed elections, deterioration in the separation of powers, attacks on journalists and freedom of the press, and entrenched autocrats in Havana, Caracas, and Managua. Indeed, we know where democratic decay can lead. After two decades, Venezuela is now a land of unbridled criminality and kleptocracy, where a humanitarian crisis has forced more than five million people to flee their homeland. While the scale is distinct, we also know that irregular migration from Central America is rooted in decades of low levels of democratic governance. Deficit, uh, or I should say deficient institutions, are unable to meet the needs of the people, and too many leaders have exploited weak rule of law to place their personal interests over those of their citizens. Given the scale of the challenge, I'm pleased to see that Vice President Harris is heading the administration's diplomatic efforts uh, in Central America. Under her leadership, we're already seeing uh, an increased humanitarian response and a strong reaction to leaders that seek to undermine democracy. So, Ambassador Nichols, I look forward to discussing with you. I appreciate your, our visit yesterday. We had a, a whole tour de force of the Western Hemisphere, uh, and we look forward to discussing with you how we'll address some of these challenges and best to collaborate to ensure your success. Ambassador Sison, uh, I'm sorry, Sisson. I don't know why I'm, it's in my mind, it's, uh, but Ambassador Sisson, I apologize. Uh, welcome to your sixth Senate confirmation hearing. It's deeply reassuring that President Biden nominated you a diplomat with extensive experience, immense skill, and a demonstrated management record to be the next Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of International Organization Affairs. Over the course of the Trump administration, we witnessed a dramatic and troubling erosion of U.S. government leadership at the U.N. We tried to pull out of the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic. We undermined international protections for women's, girls, and LGBTI individuals. And we defunded or reduced funding to key agencies. We refused to pay our dues in full to U.N. peacekeeping operations, and as a result, the United States has accrued $1.1 billion in arrears. When we shun our responsibilities and fail to lead, other countries take note and seek to take advantage to the detriment of our interests and security. China and Russia have sought to fill the vacuum left by our absence. It's time for renewal and engagement with the United Nations and its agencies like the World Fruit Program and UNFPA. In the wake of the devastating COVID-19 pandemic, we must redouble the Biden administration's effort at restoring U.S. leadership at the WHO and other international health and humanitarian organizations. The world will be closely watching how we more effectively engage within and work to strengthen international organizations. So I look forward to hearing your views and working with you to ensure we restore our critical leadership role. In closing, at a time of unprecedented challenges around the world, America needs outstanding leadership at the State Department. We look forward to your testimony, and now I'm going to return to the distinguished ranking member for his remarks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you to uh, both of you for your willingness to serve. Certainly uh, outstanding credentials. It's not often we see a panel like this with the depth of experience that the two of you have. I want to start for, uh, at where the chairman started, and that is uh, on the issues uh, in the Western Hemisphere. 
I'm increasingly concerned that while a majority of nations in our hemisphere are considered democracies, authoritarian regimes in Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba have uh, systematically dismantled democratic institutions and have committed some of the world's worst human rights abuses. These bad actors undermine their own countries, but they also undermine their neighbors. Transnational criminal organizations and malign state actors benefit from and contribute to these authoritarian regimes and pose a significant threat to the peace and stability of our hemisphere. More broadly, I remain uh, exceedingly concerned about the malign influence of China and Russia uh, throughout our hemisphere and the apparent increase of that. China's uh, predatory lending practices and spread of corruption threaten the sovereignty and the privacy of our, uh, of our uh, southern neighbors. At the same time, Russia has exported repressive tactics to allow authoritarian regimes to maintain control and crack down on dissent. Beyond external malign influence, poor governance, violence, and lack of economic opportunity in countries like El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras have prompted waves of illegal migrants to show up at our southern door. The uh, previous administration negotiated a number of agreements with these countries, and the current administration's failure to capitalize on those agreements has only fueled a surge of migrants over the past uh, few months, along with other precipitating factors, and demonstrates a significant challenge to our government's ability to protect our homeland. Lastly, as you know, Ambassador Nichols, the Columbia River Treaty between the United States and Canada is a great example of two nations managing a shared resource. I want to impress upon you the importance of a successful and timely conclusion to these negotiations for the entire Northwest uh, Congressional delegation. As you know, a number of us on a bipartisan basis have been working diligently with the department to move the negotiations forward. We stand ready to continue to assist the administration however we can in this effort. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on all of these important uh, matters. Uh, next, we have the nomination uh, for uh, Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs. This position oversees a wide range of multilateral organizations, the largest being the United Nations. The United States remains the biggest donor to the UN in both assessed and voluntary funds. While the uh, Chinese Communist Party has increased its assessed dues, it still severely lags behind the United States and our allies in voluntary contributions. The uh, Chinese Communist Party uses its minimal donations to leverage a large-scale malign influence campaign to reform global governance, as they call it, such that the international system is more conducive to its own interests. As detailed in my report last fall on transatlantic cooperation on China, the Chinese Communist Party does so in part by inserting favorable language into UN resolutions orchestrating the election of its top diplomats at UN agencies and using its veto power as a member of the UN Security Council to block efforts to expose, expose human rights violations. This fall, the United States will have an opportunity to negotiate the, scale, uh, the scales of assessment of UN peacekeeping to be consistent with US law. Currently, the United Nations assesses the United States at 27.9%. As you know, this is not congruent with U.S. law. No country should pay more than 25%. And in 1994, uh, the Congress of the United States enacted a bill that imposed a 25% on U.S. Con uh, contributions for this program. That law remains in effect today. This mandate should be upheld during the upcoming negotiations. 
I remind the administration that this is U.S. law and it must be used in their negotiating position. I also remain concerned, really concerned, by the administration's recent decision to resume funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, also known as, as UNRWA. This was done without securing, without insisting on, without even asking for any reforms. Over the years, the agency has employed individuals uh, affiliated with Hamas, a U.S.-designated terrorist organization. UNRWA schools have been used to store Hamas weapons, and there have been numerous cases of UNRWA textbooks containing material that is anti-Semitic. Uh, U.S. government assistance to UNRWA should cease unless true reform, as described above, is secured. Finally, I'm also concerned about the administration's decision to seek a seat at the UN Human Rights Council with, again without seeking any reforms. The Council is a broken body that focuses on a majority of its time on bullying our ally, uh, Israel, and allows some of the greatest human rights abusers like China, Cuba, Russia, Iran, and Venezuela a seat at the table. I know it's a bumper sticker to say, oh, we're always better off with a seat at the table uh, when issues are being discussed than not being there. That isn't always true, particularly in this instance when you're sitting there rubbing elbows with the worst uh, human rights abusers on the planet. Uh, only true reform will bring legitimacy back to that council, and the administration should work to secure substantial changes. With that, I thank both of you for being here today, your willingness to serve and recognize the sacrifices of both you and your families in this effort. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, thank you Senator Risch. Uh, we'll now turn to the two nominees. Uh, we ask you to summarize your testimony in about five minutes. Your full statements will be included in the record. And we'll start off with uh, Ambassador Nichols. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee. It is an honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as the next Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs. I owe a deep debt of gratitude to President Biden, Vice President Harris, and Secretary Blinken for the confidence that they have placed in me at this crucial moment in our hemisphere. The opportunity to appear before this committee for the third time as a nominee to serve the American people steals my resolve to fight for the values that our nation holds dear, democracy, the rule of law, and the innate dignity of every individual. With over 32 years serving our nation at some of our most challenging missions around the world, if confirmed, I look forward to bringing all my skills and experience to bear in that fight. President Biden has said that democracy holds the key to freedom, prosperity, peace, and dignity. And if we work together with our democratic partners with strength and confidence, we will meet every challenge and outpace every challenger. My experience serving in our embassies in North, Central, and South America, as well as directing our policy towards the Caribbean, convinces me of the vital urgency of the President's words. Our home, the Western Hemisphere, remains central to America's welfare, our prosperity, and our future. America's fortunes cannot be separated from those of our closest neighbors. If confirmed, I look forward to drawing on the enormous talent and dedication of the community of professionals within the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. As well as civil society throughout the Americas, our own private sector, and of course, 
our Congress to advance America and the region's progress toward a more democratic, secure, and prosperous region. I have spent most of my career within the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. If confirmed, I will strive to build an inclusive, compassionate, and diverse team that reflects our nation's prowess and professionalism. We will work to expand our engagement and partnerships throughout the Western Hemisphere, especially with our closest neighbors, Canada, Mexico, and the Caribbean. The situation in Central America demands our urgent attention and unflagging efforts to promote democracy, prosperity, and security, addressing the root causes of irregular migration. The, the disastrous effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, climate change, and a recession in many countries have opened the door to malign influences from outside our region. We will build upon the shared values, family ties, economic opportunities, and commitment to fundamental freedoms to counter those malign actors and deliver a better future for the people of our region. My professional achievements owe to the women who surround me, my wonderful wife, Jerry, a retired senior foreign service officer, my talented daughters, Alex and Sophie, and my brilliant mother, Mildred. They have pushed me to be a better person, sacrificed for my career, and nurtured me with their love and support. In 1959, my late father began our family's adventure in diplomacy and foreign affairs, serving as a Fulbright scholar and then partnering with the U.S. Information Agency on various projects in Europe and helping to start the American Studies program at the Free University of Berlin. My own past assignments provide rich experience should the Senate confirm me to serve as Assistant Secretary. During my tenure as ambassador to Zimbabwe, I have fought tenaciously for democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. I have led my team in responding to the multidimensional humanitarian crisis in Zimbabwe. As ambassador to Peru, I led a large mission that focused on improving the rule of law, fighting transnational crime and corruption, and promoting respect for human rights, particularly of women, girls, and disadvantaged groups. I also led a unified mission initiative to promote American businesses and grow American jobs, earning the department's Charles Cobb Award for those efforts. Prior to that, as the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement, I helped direct a team of nearly 7,000 professionals who worked to expand access to justice, protect civilians, and combat crime around the world. I have hands-on experience shaping our, our rule of law programs in Mexico and Central America, as well as crafting innovative justice sector outreach to Afro-descendant and indigenous populations in the Americans. Should the Senate confirm me, I will aim to exemplify the highest standards of our great nation and strengthen our diplomacy. I look forward to partnering with you to advance America's interests in the Western Hemisphere. I stand ready to answer any questions you might have now and in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Ambassador Sisson. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee. I am honored to appear before you as President Biden's nominee to serve as Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs, I.O. I am grateful to President Biden and to Secretary Blinken for this opportunity. I want to recognize my daughters, Alexandra and Jessica, who are watching virtually today. Their love has supported me as I represented our country around the world and at the United Nations. Over the past 39 years, I've been privileged to serve under six U.S. administrations and as ambassador four times overseas to the United Arab Emirates, Lebanon, Sri Lanka and Maldives, and Haiti. Given that experience, as well as service in Togo, Benin, Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire, India, 
Pakistan, Iraq, and at the U.S. mission to the United Nations, I know that the United States cannot address today's global challenges alone. From climate change to the COVID-19 pandemic, we must work in partnership with other nations. President Biden has made it clear that we will put our core U.S. values at the center of our foreign policy. As U.S. Deputy Permanent Representative at the U.N. in New York, I saw that our nation is stronger when we lead the way in crafting strategic cross-regional partnerships. These alliances are key in safeguarding multilateral institutions from those such as the People's Republic of China that seek to bend the U.N. system to their authoritarian agendas. We must actively outcompete efforts by nations that stand in opposition to our U.S. values on human rights, democracy, labor rights, and transparent economic practices. If confirmed, this will be at the top of my agenda. It's important that we uphold the rules-based order that upholds and promotes our values, advances sustainable development, and protects human rights. The United States has a strong stake in leading efforts to preserve a free and open market, a free and open internet, and in advancing global governance in areas such as technology, trade, and climate change. These rules and values benefit American interests and the American people. From the World Food Program to UNICEF to the International Telecommunication Union, we have a deep stake in leading the international system, driving forward reforms with our partners. We must also ensure that the voices of civil society, women, ethnic and religious minorities, and other marginalized communities are heard. I've seen firsthand how UN peacekeepers and humanitarian workers protect civilians and save lives in places critical to U.S. national interests. I've witnessed the positive impact of U.S. leadership when we insist on results and when we press for accountability, including accountability related to sexual exploitation and abuse. We are the largest contributor to the UN system. It is in our interest to lead in promoting genuine reform. Thus, ensuring the transparency and integrity of multilateral bodies is a key priority. We must promote qualified independent candidates to lead multilateral institutions, and we must leverage the commitments of other countries to ensure that financial burdens are shared. We must also fight bias against Israel across the UN system. The IO Bureau supports strong U.S. leadership at the UN and multilateral venues to advance our U.S. national interests, protect the American people, promote U.S. prosperity, and drive the reforms needed to ensure the effectiveness of international organizations. As a Foreign Service practitioner, I know that our skilled diplomats at our missions abroad, our talented negotiators, and our amazing civil service subject matter experts are our force multipliers in the multilateral arena and in mobilizing global action. If confirmed, prioritizing diversity and inclusion and building strong morale within the I.O. Bureau will be at the top of my list. And if confirmed, I also pledge Number one, to look hard at UN and international organization management and budgeting practices and at how agencies implement ethics rules, including whistleblower protection. Number two, to insist on effective peacekeeping operations that advance political solutions, have realistic and achievable mandates, and include women's participation. Number three, to consult with you as we work together to meet the challenges of today's strategic competition and as we prove that respect for human rights transparency and democratic norms can and will prevail. If confirmed, I know that you will be counting on me to make sure that U.S. taxpayer dollars are well spent and that our multilateral policies and programs improve the lives of the world's most vulnerable citizens 
contribute to international peace and security, and serve the American people. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you, and I welcome your questions. Uh, thank you, Ambassador. Uh, we'll start a series of five-minute rounds, uh, and I'll, I'll start. Uh, Ambassador Nichols, we had a good tour of uh, the hemisphere yesterday, so I'm not going to revisit all of those, but there's one or two I do want to drill down on. Uh, as uh, Miguel Diaz-Canal assumed the leadership of Cuba's Communist Party and completed his transition uh, to what I believe is dictator-in-chief, the Cuban regime repeatedly has used the mantra of somos continuada, which means we are the continuation, to make it clear that they need to maintain a single-party authoritarian state. Nevertheless, in a renewed wave of civic activism, including protests by artists, singers, and others in the San Isidro movement, a largely Afro-Cuban movement, uh, there is a demanding greater respect for dem democratic values and an end to human rights abuses. So what our policy is moving forward is going to be incredibly important. Uh, let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you believe that the attacks on our diplomatic personnel known as the Havana Syndrome, are known, either are, were conducted by the Cubans or are known in terms of who conducted them by the Cubans? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I would just note uh, by way of entry that uh, I know that our Cuba policy is under review within the administration, uh, but let me offer a, a few thoughts uh, and if confirmed, I look forward to contributing to that process. Uh, our priority in Cuba, as the rest of the hemisphere, needs to be democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. Countries should not be grandfathered because they have failed to respect those tenets. Uh, the new first secretary of the Communist Party of Cuba um, does not appear to me to be significantly different from uh, his predecessors, uh, but time will tell on that point. Uh, with regard to the Havana attacks, uh, the Havana syndrome, um, my knowledge of the, uh, of the process the, of looking into that is limited, but I certainly believe that uh, given the amount of control uh, that uh, uh, the Communist Party has in Cuba, um, there are more things that they can tell us about what was going on at that time. Uh, and I think that uh, the process that uh, the Secretary has designated, uh, led by Ambassador Pamela Spratlin and the Health Incident Response Team, uh, working with our interagency partners, uh, is an important opportunity to get to the bottom of these incidents, and if confirmed, I commit to uh, contributing to that process. Well, well, I appreciate that. It's impossible if you understand Cuba's state-controlled system and its security apparatus to believe that anything can happen in the island without some knowledge of the Cuban regime, which they certainly have not shared with us. And now we find these attacks proliferating in other parts of the world. Do you believe that the practice of the Cuban regime of taking 20% of remittances to Cuban families, then converting the balance of the remittance to Cuban pesos that are worth a fraction of what Americans send to their families that can only be used at state-owned stores is an acceptable practice? The, uh, again, the, the Cuba policy is under review, but I do believe that those who are most responsible for abuses of human rights and democracy in Cuba should not benefit from uh, remittances 
uh, going to the Cuban people. Our priority needs to be what is best for the Cuban people uh, and focus our efforts on supporting them. And I believe that the best ambassadors for doing that are the American people and particularly uh, the diaspora here. Well, let me, let me, brief, let me hone in my question because I have limited time. I appreciate all of that, but here's the, here's the point. If we want to help the Cuban people, taking 20% off of the $100 I sent to my aunt, converting the other $80 of U.S. dollars into pesos, which is worth a fraction, and then being able largely to only buy it at a government store, which is jacked up in prices, is not helping the Cuban people. It's certainly helping the regime. So I'm for sending my remittances to my aunt, but I want her to get the remittances I send. Let me ask you this. Uh, do you believe that uh, sending, as the regime does, Cuban doctors abroad, then taking away their passports and getting paid for their services without fully paying the doctors is human trafficking? I believe that the, their labor rights are being violated uh, in large measure, and I think it has many characteristics of human trafficking, yes. No. And um, do you believe that... Um, the uh, militarization of the Cuban economy, whereas Raul Castro's son and son-in-law, high-ranking officers of the Cuban military, um, is an acceptable practice for U.S. businesses to engage with? I think that uh, we should be working to promote diversity in the economy in, in Cuba and, and focusing our efforts on what is best for the Cuban people. Uh, the roles of senior officials and family members uh, in the economy uh, goes in the opposite direction. And if confirmed, I look forward to contributing to the department's review of our, our policies uh, within the interagency. Yeah, well, let me just say that, and I'll end on this note. So an American business wants to do business in Cuba, or they want to do, you know, uh, tourism, or they want to buy ag or sell agricultural products. They either have to go to Raul's son or son-in-law, both high-ranking officials of the Cuban military who control the two quote-unquote companies uh, that uh, are run uh, by the regime. So you become a partner with the state, uh, in essence a partner with those who oppress its people. Uh, and your partner is high-ranking officials of the Cuban military. I don't know if we, for example, would accept that in China. I don't know if we would accept it elsewhere. And it's certainly not as a help to the Cuban people. So I look forward to continuing that conversation. Senator Rich. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Nichols, uh, I, I want to talk about a parochial issue uh, that is the Columbia River Treaty. Um, I, how, how engaged have you been on that issue, or have you been uh, uh, prior to coming on board here? Thank you. I, I uh, have received a briefing on uh, uh, the, uh, the treaty from uh, our negotiators and, and legal uh, team. Uh, I have not participated in the deliberations uh, with regard to the negotiations. Okay, thank you. I hope you'll familiarize yourself with this. I, uh, I can tell you this is not a partisan issue. Indeed, uh, uh, we have been, we, when I say we, we're ta I'm talking about the uh, senators, uh, particularly from uh, the Northwest, have been working with the negotiating team from uh, the State Department. And we found them uh, really good to work with. Uh, they're, they're, 
working uh, on an issue that is incredibly complex and incredibly difficult uh, with a friend and neighbor, uh, but uh, with whom we have uh, obviously competing uh, interests as we try to complete this, uh, the, complete the negotiations. I have trouble with my some of my colleagues here whose last brush with the Columbia River was when they took geography in either grammar school or high school. So uh, they, uh, they're they learning uh, how important the Columbia River is to those of us uh, that uh, uh, have water that uh, flows into the Columbia and and the effects that it has upstream on, on us. So uh, I, first of all, I, I do want to tell you, you've got a good team in place. Uh, we, we, can, we intend to continue to work with them. And it is bipartisan, and I hope that uh, uh, we will continue down that road, and uh, I look forward to uh, your help in that regard. Thank you, Senator, and I look forward to working with you on that if confirmed. Uh, the Columbia River and its basin have important implications for uh, hydroelectric power, green energy, the environment, and obviously flood control and the economy of the western part of our nation. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Ambassador uh, Sisson, I, I uh, want to underscore to you the uh, disappointment a lot of us had when uh, the administration jumped right back into UNRWA. Uh, this, the, what, what UNRWA uh, has done over the years is very disheartening, and it's impossible to explain to United States taxpayers, particularly my constituents, how uh, the funds that uh, U.S. taxpayer dollars that flowed into UNRWA could be used to uh, print textbooks that uh, I, I have no doubt you've seen uh, that have anti-Semitic uh, uh, materials in them, and this is paid for by U.S. dollars, and also the other things that UNRWA has done, uh, uh, allowing their, their facilities to be used for military facilities and that sort of thing. Um, again, I... Uh, you, you, we want to participate always in these things, but when they're doing stuff like that, it becomes very difficult, and particularly uh, when the funds have now been freed up for UNRWA to get those funds again, and, and we're a huge contributor to that operation. What, what are your thoughts on that? Good morning, Senator, and, and thank you for that question. The issue of transparency, accountability, and oversight with regard to the UN Relief Works Agency, UNRWA, and across the UN system uh, would be a key priority uh, if confirmed. On UNRWA specifically, it, it is absolutely critical that we insist on neutrality. And that goes for the staff of UNRWA, the policies, the programs, the educational materials uh, that you have mentioned. Uh, if confirmed, uh, I will be insisting on these red lines of complete neutrality, no educational materials, whether it's textbook or online educational resources uh, that uh, contain uh, references to anti-Semitism, uh, incitement. Um, these are important issues, and if confirmed, I would be working with uh, UN counterparts and others in the I.O. Bureau and, and across uh, our, our, our State Department uh, to insist that these red lines are not crossed and that internal controls are maintained. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that, and um, I, I appreciate your commitment and <clears throat> your thoughts in that regard. I, it, it always amazes me um, 
when something like this happens where the funds were freed up without a commitment. I mean, if, if they won't make the commitment before they get the money, how in the world can you possibly think they'll make the commitment uh, after they get the money? So I'm, uh, it, it amazes me uh, how we transfer funds like this without, without getting anything back for it. And my time is up, and I thank you for that commitment, and thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Rich. I understand Senator Cardin is with us on, on virtually. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I want to thank both of our distinguished nominees for their service to our country. Ambassador Sisson, I'm proud that you are a Marylander. I heard Senator Van Holland's introductions. We're very proud of your career service, uh, diplomatic service to our country. It's clearly going to be challenged as we reassert America's diplomacy globally, the work that we do with our international uh, organizations. So I look forward to working with you. Ambassador Nichols, I again thank you for your uh, career of public service. Both of you have served our nation with distinction and honor, and I join the chairman in thanking you and your families for your willingness to continue in public service. And Ambassador Nichols, you and I had a chance to talk, and I just want to underscore a few of the points. Uh, one area that affects both of the, uh, of the individuals that are before us is the U.S. role uh, in the OAS. And I mention that because uh, Senator Wicker and I had uh, introduced legislation that became law for a parliamentary dimension within the Organization of American States. And I point that out, the more that we can get legislators working with our diplomats, particularly in the international organizations and regional organizations, I think the more effective it will be. So I look forward to a stronger parliamentary arm within the OAS. We have a very strong parliamentary arm within OSCE. I think we could improve our representation at the United Nations. We have two of our members who are designated to represent uh, the the Senate. Uh, I think working with each other, we can strengthen in unity U.S. foreign policy uh, goals. Uh, Ambassador Nichols, I want to ask you about a subject that, that we talked about at some length, and that is uh, making uh, anti-corruption uh, a key part of our policy in our hemisphere. We've seen an erosion of good governance. Uh, we knew that in Northern and Central America. We, we see uh, significant challenges uh, as countries have uh, gone back on their commitment for their anti-corruption uh, uh, institutions. Uh, we see this in, in so many countries. We are, of course, in uh, Cuba is a country that, has, uh, that the chairman has mentioned frequently. It's a corrupt country, Venezuela, etc. cetera. Uh, we have legislation that you and I have talked about that passed our uh, Senate last Congress. Uh, we're going to try to get it to the finish line this time that will fine-tune the missions uh, each of our missions in each of our countries uh, on, on anti-corruption. I want to just get your comments as to how high a priority this will be uh, when you are confirmed. Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, fighting corruption is vital to our efforts to strengthen democracy in our hemisphere and around the world. Uh, I want to thank uh, you and the other members of this body for the tools that you have given us. Uh, I believe that we should robustly use our Treasury OFAC sanctions, our 7031C sanctions, uh, and the full range of tools available to deal with those who would steal from the public purse, deprive the peoples of the region of their resources and their wealth, uh, and uh, given my experience in my current assignment, 
uh, and previously in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement. I look forward to deploying those tools uh, robustly uh, in support of democracy around the region. I also like to note that I fully concur that the uh, Article I branch of government and its engagement uh, around the hemisphere uh, with other legislatures uh, will be an important tool in supporting democracy. Let me raise one more issue with you, if I might, and that is the Caribbean states. Uh, for too long, we have not given them the attention that they need. Uh, we have not done well with their voting at the United Nations or at OAS, for that matter. Uh, and uh, there are many uh, Caribbean states. It does not take too much attention or resources to strengthen our ties. What strategy do you have in order to increase our partnership with the Caribbean states? If confirmed, I look forward to building on our shared values with the Caribbean and their commitment to democracy and the rule of law. I believe that our engagement with the Caribbean region uh, needs to include a robust presence. And if confirmed, I look forward to advocating for that. We need to leverage our development tools around the region, work with our multilateral partners and international financial institutions to get them the resources that they need and to make sure that um, we are attending to those issues um, that hold them back in their development. Ambassador Sisson, I would just underscore the point that we could do much better in getting support at the United Nations if our missions recognize how important those votes are to United States foreign policy. We got to connect the dots and uh, uh, more capitals around the world so that we have stronger support at the United Nations and letting us know in Congress where we can be helpful in getting those types of relationships that can help us advance our foreign policy. I hope you have a strategy to help us do that. Good morning, Senator. And indeed, the necessity of building broad cross-regional alliances and partnerships is critical across uh, the UN and multilateral venues, whether we're talking about uh, New York or, or Geneva, um, really across the multilateral space. Um, and I do appreciate the offer that I just heard for the I.O. Bureau, and if confirmed, I will take you up on this. I think that so many of the members of this committee have built deep relationships uh, with leaders across the world. And uh, if confirmed, I would hope that I would be able to turn to you and ask for some help uh, with enough advance notice and placing a call or two uh, when and if uh, needed. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to working with you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Young, I understand, is with us uh, virtually. Thank you, Chairman. I'm not sure my picture is appearing. Can I be heard? You are certainly heard, but not seen. Okay. Well, um, I will, uh, I'll just go ahead and, and uh, dive in. So, uh, building on uh, Senator Cardin's questions pertaining to uh, the Caribbean Basin, uh, as you know, Mr. Nichols, the Senate's considering a far-reaching China package, which includes American policies towards the Western Hemisphere, which if confirmed, you'll be tasked with overseeing. One of your first responsibilities would be managing the creation of a strategy uh, to strengthen economic competitiveness, good governance, human rights, and the rule of law in Latin America and the Caribbean. I want to 
know what policies you believe have worked in the past in these areas and how we might better work to improve uh, some of these policies across the region to reduce our neighbors' vulnerability to Chinese influence. And, uh, you know, you might include specifically how the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative uh, could be utilized to push back on uh, Chinese infrastructure developments. Thank you, Senator. I think that uh, we have a, a robust uh, menu of policies and options that uh, I would seek to leverage if confirmed. Uh, we need to work across the board in institution strengthening. Uh, using our uh, Agency for International Development, uh, for political party strengthening, for grassroots policy support uh, uh, at the human level. Uh, I think we've uh, got to take advantage of our international financial institution partners and make sure that uh, they are helping to advance uh, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law in the region, particularly the Inter-American Development Bank as a tool within our own region. Uh, the Organization of American States is similarly an important tool that uh, within its charter, uh, it is committed to uh, those tenets of democracy, human rights, and the rule of law uh, that we hold dear. Uh, working throughout the region, as I have, uh, uh, justice sector support uh, has been crucial and I think very successful uh, in many countries around the region in providing uh, units and organizations that respect human rights and the rule of law, that support democracy, uh, and uh, the extent to which we can uh, build upon those resources will be important. Uh, I think CBSI has been an important tool um, throughout the region. Uh, in terms of the, the future and the way forward, uh, we need to look to leverage uh, that asset in building institutions, making trade, um, communications, service sector improvements. Okay. All right. I, I, I'm sorry to interject. Our time is just somewhat limited, uh, understandably, in this format. So my apologies, sir. I'm going to move on because I have some other things I'd like to turn to. I just returned from uh, our southern border with Mexico. Uh, spent all day Friday uh, down there in the Yuma, Arizona area, where I actually spent uh, some time years ago as a United States Marine participating in, in uh, counter-trafficking operations uh, and uh, monitoring some of the activities there, working with other agencies. The challenges continue. In fact, uh, I think it's fair to say, we're hearing this uh, from uh, Republicans and Democrats alike, that uh, we have an ongoing crisis at the southern border. And that crisis has underscored the importance of identifying the root cause of unchecked immigration from the Northern Triangle region. Despite $3.6 billion in USAID over the 2016 to 2021 fiscal years, immigration policy from the new administration has still resulted in a staggering number of migrants fleeing these countries. And uh, I suppose we don't need to uh, really fixate on the massive uptick we've seen in the last couple of months. Uh, everyone's aware of it. 
Despite billions of dollars in USAID to these economically distressed countries, why have we seen a recent surge in immigration when it was largely controlled for the past several years? Uh, Mr. Nichols. I think there are a variety of reasons, but I would point to a couple that are um, driving the uptick. Uh, one is a loss of economic opportunities uh, driven by climate disasters and climate change in the region, corruption, violence, rule of law, a lack of hope, and we need to work to address the root ca causes of those challenges urgently. I'll, I'll keep my answer brief, but have to go into it further if you like, sir. Well, thank you for your time. I would also add the message from the White House has not been particularly helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Senator Shaheen. Thank you both for your past service to this country and for your willingness to be considered for these important posts at this critical time. Ambassador Nichols, I want to begin with you. As we heard from Senator Young, um, so much of the focus on America's borders has been on the southern border between the United States and Mexico. But I want to ask about our northern border with Canada, because for states like New Hampshire, that border Canada, the border closures have been very disruptive, both for businesses that go back and forth across the border to do business, but also for many of our residents who have relatives in Canada and have been limited in their travel. Now, I understand that these were done because of the pandemic, but we are coming up on an end to the most recent extension of that border closure in May, and I wondered if you have any sense of what will happen on May 21st when the current restrictions expire and um, whether we need to keep this border closed or how soon we might be able to safely reopen it. Thank you, Senator. Uh, I'm not yet confirmed. I have not been privy to the deliberations on that topic. I know that the uh, HHS uh, and Homeland Security are looking at this issue carefully. Uh, I believe that the decision will be uh, driven by the best science available. Uh, we're making important progress in our own country against uh, the pandemic, and I, I hope that uh, uh, we'll be able to see progress uh, with regard to the border soon. Well, thank you. Um, do I have your commitment that once confirmed that you will look at this issue closely and urge um, an examination that recognizes the challenges that are faced by that border closure? Yes, Senator. Thank you very much. Ambassador Sisson, um, I still have fond memories of my visit to Lebanon during your tenure there as ambassador. Um, sadly, things have um, significantly declined in Lebanon since that time. And I know that you're very familiar with UNIFIL's mission in Lebanon, how important it's been to the country and to its relations with its neighbors. If confirmed, how will you approach the mandate renewal in August? And how can the U.S. be a moderator between the Lebanese Armed Forces, UNIFIL, and Lebanon's neighbors? Good to see you again, uh, Senator, and uh, good morning. As with all peacekeeping missions, we want to make sure that uh, at the time of mandate renewal um, and discussion at the UN Security Council, that we're looking at realistic and achievable mandates, that we're looking uh, at mandates uh, that uh, include women 
in peacekeeping as both uh, military and police peacekeepers, um, that when possible that this mandate promotes the uh, political solution, and uh, that we look at the reforms in terms of effectiveness, efficiency, um, to deliver on that mandate. And of course, the mandates need to be well-resourced as well to be effective. UNIFIL has played a stabilizing role in southern Lebanon. And uh, we are seeing this uh, at the present time as well. If confirmed, I look forward to continuing uh, to consult with you, Senator, and other members of this committee on how we can make peacekeeping the most effective and efficient investment, and uh, that the peacekeepers are resourced uh, to perform their mandates effectively. Thank you. Thank you. One of the most pressing issues facing the Security Council at the UN is the need to maintain humanitarian aid in Syria. How can you and the State Department and those of us in Congress support Ambassador Thomas Greenfield's efforts to push back against Russia's obstructionism in allowing that humanitarian aid to those who need it? Senator, I absolutely agree with you on the urgency of keeping a humanitarian uh, delivery, these corridors open, the reauthorization of Bob Alhawa uh, for another 12 months is completely uh, uh, a priority, and if confirmed, uh, would be looking to push on the other two cross-border points that are not currently uh, authorized to be used. The suffering that we see, particularly in northeast and northwestern Syria, uh, is alarming food insecurity, uh, the inability to deliver badly needed medical and other items, particularly in this period of, of the COVID pandemic. So if confirmed, I do look forward to consulting closely with you and with working with Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield and her team on uh, this critical issue of uh, the reauthorization of the cross-border delivery. Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, I'm out of time, but I just want to weigh in um, in support of your point about the Havana syndrome and um, our... Um, efforts that we should be making with the Cuban regime to press them more on what they know. And Ambassador Nichols, I would also just like to weigh in. I appreciate the administration's appointment of Ambassador Spratlin. But the fact is, in Congress, we are still not getting the information we need on what's actually happening with so-called Havana Syndrome government-wide nor are we seeing the coordination that I think we would all hope to see and the assurance that those people who are affected are getting absolutely the best health care that they need. So I hope you will um, share that with the State Department. I will, Senator, and uh, those who are injured in those attacks and the health of our people um, throughout uh, our service and throughout our government uh, are my highest priority. Senator Rounds. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you to both of you for your service to our country. You, you clearly are both very well qualified, and we appreciate your offer of continued service. Ambassador Nichols, I'm concerned about, I guess, uh, the ongoing and, in some cases, increasing Chinese and Russian engagement in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, one example is China's uh, launching of a vaccine diplomacy strategy 
aimed at Latin America, while Russia is launching countless disinformation campaigns in Latin America to discredit the West, specifically the United States. What do you think should be done to address this, and what resources are available to you for that purpose? I know that you've indicated that there are some organizations and so forth, but when it comes to their very aggressive approach to provide misinformation about our country, but also to gather additional uh, leverage within the Western Hemisphere. Share with me your thoughts and, and, and what tools you would see available to you. Thank you, Senator, and I fully share your concerns. Uh, we have a number of tools available to us. Uh, we have the Global Engagement Center pushing back on disinformation. Uh, we're bolstering our public diplomacy at the embassy level throughout the hemisphere, and I think that's a very important tool. Uh, we have shared values, and we need to point out uh, to the peoples of the region the shared values that we have and the difference between what we consider important and what the real costs of the engagement that the, the malign actors from outside our hemisphere, like China and Russia, are engaging in. Uh, the Chinese offer all sorts of things. They don't come for free. The Chinese are getting something out of it. Uh, and we need to push back aggressively uh, with a variety of tools. Uh, they also offer in their uh, economic engagement um, unfair competition practices and corruption. And, we, and when we see that, we need to call it out. I think sometimes uh, their offer of assistance to a country is seen as uh, a first step in where Later on, they'll start asking for small favors and then move into more demands. In our case, I would suspect that there are times in which we're seen as looking at some of our neighbors and saying, we expect you to behave in a particular way. And uh, uh, rather than talking about our shared values, we try to impose values upon them. Share with me your thoughts about the differentiation between our shared values and times in which we might be seen as placing our values upon them. I think it's a critical difference. I think that there are uh, advantages in our hemisphere in that uh, our, our founding documents in this hemisphere lay out what the nations of this region believe in and what they've committed to. Uh, the OAS is the world's oldest regional multilateral organization, and its charter lays out values very clearly that all of the nations in this hemisphere have signed on to. And I think we can point to those. We can point to polling of the publics in this hemisphere and their value for democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. Uh, and I think when we talk about what the Chinese and the Russians are really offering, what they're really asking of governments, there's a big difference between what one individual official in a government might want and what I think the people of that nation might want. Thank you. Ambassador Sisson, the COVID-19 pandemic certainly put a spotlight on the World Health Organization. Concerns have been expressed that the WHO lacks sufficient, uh, WHO lacks sufficient resources to manage a global pandemic as well as maintain its integrity. Do you think that the WHO is resourced to handle a global pandemic? And do you believe that it is still an unbiased organization despite Chinese influence? And finally, how do you think the Department of State can help to strengthen the organization? Good morning, Senator. Uh, indeed, uh, the issue of uh, the World Health Organization, WHO's need to be fit for purpose 
and modernized is an important one. And uh, there is an issue, of course, of the need for sustained financing. We don't want to start down a road and only to find that we're not able to continue down the road as we work uh, to strengthen WHO's ability uh, in surveillance detection, in, in infectious disease prevention, um, the ability to respond, uh, to re uh, insist that all members' uh, states report transparently. But of course, that sustained financing uh, needs to be matched with a strong focus. And if confirmed, this would be a top priority on transparency, accountability, and oversight of uh, the WHO's uh, operations. You mentioned the word integrity, and absolutely, we need to make sure that the WHO's assessments, findings, reports are science-based, expert-led, free from outside influence. And again, we need to insist that all member states uh, obey, uh, com comply with, I should say, uh, the international norms on, on uh, infectious disease reporting, international health regulations. We need full transparency on this. Couldn't agree more, Senator. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, my time has expired. Thank you, Senator Brown. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your willingness to continue to serve, uh, especially in these uh, very important roles. Um, Ambassador Nichols, I wanted to turn to the topic of Venezuela. Um, you know, by no metric can anyone suggest that President Trump's policy in Venezuela was a success. Maduro was more cemented in power at the end of his four years. Um, but there's been some interesting developments over the past few months. Um, we've seen some compromises by the Maduro government on humanitarian access, uh, the creation of a new electoral council, willingness to join the Norway-hosted talks. Um, and so I'm interested to learn from you um, your early thoughts about how the United States can help push this momentum along, capitalize it, and then specifically whether this is the time to talk about restoring diesel swaps. Um, I've believed for a while that the United States should be engaged in this policy as a way to relieve humanitarian suffering inside the country. Um, but I wonder if this policy now makes even more sense because not only does it provide an avenue to try to get much needed economic relief to people who are suffering, um, but it also may be a way to show that the United States is open to uh, helping to be a part of these uh, sort of grass shoots of negotiating room. Thank you, Senator. Uh there, uh, there needs to be a, a key focus in our policy, in my view, which uh, I should caveat that I understand is under review within the administration. Uh, so this will be my personal views. But I, I believe that we have a, a major advantage in dealing with Venezuela, that there's a broad multilateral coalition uh, working to promote democracy uh, in Venezuela. And uh, that's something that we need to leverage aggressively to push the Maduro regime towards free and fair elections. Uh, we need to support the Venezuelan people, um, both at the political level uh, in uh, the form of uh, opposition leaders and interim President Guaido, as well as uh, pushing uh, for humanitarian assistance and uh, ensuring that the people of Venezuela 
uh, do have access to the help that they need. With regard to diesel swaps, right now, uh, as I understand it, there is enough diesel capacity uh, within Venezuela, at least for the next six months or so. Uh, I think that's something that needs to be watched. Uh, and if uh, we see that there is uh, a problem there for the Venezuelan people, I think that's something to be looked at. Um, but uh, I think maintaining economic pressure to negotiate on a government that uh, has shown that it will use dilatory tactics uh, to prevent progress toward free and fair elections, uh, in addition to things like releasing political prisoners and allowing a free press, uh, we have to be very cautious on. Yeah, no doubt, as Senator Menendez regularly reminds us, this is Maduro's game, is to sort of entertain hopes of reform, uh, stringing the international community and the United States along with, you know, nothing to be found at the uh, end of the rainbow. And so I think we go into this with eyes wide open, but it is also interesting that Guaido himself has proposed the incremental lifting of U.S. sanctions as an incentive to try to uh, continue along this path, um, uh, but uh, look forward to working with you on uh, on, on this as the review continues. Um, Ambassador Sisson, I wanted to talk to you um, about a, a topic that um, regularly comes up in this committee, and that's Yemen. Um, we have a uh, UN and WFP appeal that is right now about one-third funded. Now, it's never 100% funded, but in prior years, we've been able to stave off famine by making sure that we're at least 80, 90% funded on that appeal. There are some pretty important countries like Qatar that have made sort of no uh, contribution. There's talk of a second donors conference uh, to try to make sure that we um, put our foot uh, onto the pedal because we're looking at a, a, a 2021 famine, a, a new outbreak of cholera. Um, if we don't um, rally the world community through the UN, through WFP, um, to make sure that the money is there. And by the way, the United States put in less money this year than we did last year, which is not exactly helping the situation. Just your thoughts on how we can make sure we get the humanitarian dollars we need in Yemen. Uh, good morning, Senator, and uh, share your concern about the food insecurity and the need for um, humanitarian access uh, to the vulnerable populations in Yemen. And in fact, uh, just flew up for the uh, hearing from Haiti, but we did have uh, WFP Executive Director David Beasley with us a couple of weeks ago, and we actually uh, discussed Yemen and the alarming situation there uh, with, with the mounting food insecurity. Um, so if confirmed, you have my absolute commitment that I would be working uh, both with uh, uh, stakeholders to create these uh, broad partnerships uh, with uh, other donors and, and uh, like-minded countries. Uh, we also to support uh, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield and her team up in New York, because of course the UN Security Council um, has put an enormous amount of effort uh, and work in uh, to re uh, maintain Security Council voice, a United Security Council voice uh, on Yemen. Uh, if confirmed, look forward to consulting and talking with you more on this important topic. Great. Thank you very much, Gbo. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ranking Member Rich, thank you. And Ambassadors, thank you for your service. Uh, greatly appreciated. Um, I'd like to first talk about the Western Hemisphere. I'm from Tennessee. Since the border collapsed in late January, we've experienced a dramatic increase in drug trafficking, in overdoses, in human trafficking. We've now got unaccompanied minors coming into Tennessee. 
our schools and hospitals are asking whether we have the capacity to deal with this. This has become the most urgent crisis in America from a national security standpoint, from an economic security standpoint, from a humanitarian standpoint. So earlier this month, I traveled to Guatemala and to Mexico to meet with leaders there to try to get at the bottom of what the problem is, what's driving this. I didn't hear much talk about climate change. What I heard was that we're sending messages from here, whether it's talk, you know, election talk about how people will be treated if a certain outcome occurs, whether it's talk about the potential for a $15 minimum wage, whether it's talk about checks for illegal immigrants, or the fact that we've extended unemployment, plussed up unemployment benefits all the way to September, which is creating a giant job opening here in America. Coyotes are taking these messages and marketing them to very vulnerable people. They're encouraging these vulnerable people to put their life savings on the line and to risk their lives to make a very dangerous journey, a journey in which more than half of them are involved in some, in some way in crime, whether they become part of the drug trafficking, part of the sex trafficking, or in some other way violated horribly. This is a very dangerous humanitarian crisis that's occurring in our border. The leaders of these countries are not happy about this at all. They blame us in large part, but they also see opportunity. That's what I was trying to get, and I want to share these with you, Ambassador Nichols, these observations, that when I met with the President of Guatemala, he said, look, I'm not asking for you to send money or fund NGOs, but help us technically. Night vision goggles, technical training so we can manage our own border. Our own national sovereignty is being violated, he told me. We want to cooperate. We think we can cooperate. And if we can get our border under control and bring the rule of law more in line, we'll see more infrastructure investment, which is what they desperately need. We have tools here. This committee has jurisdiction over some of the tools that we can help them with infrastructure investment. But we need to get the rule of law and public safety in order there. I think there are great opportunities to cooperate with them, and I would look forward to working with you toward those ends. They also want to see us stop the national security problem that they've got, too, because they don't know who's entering their country. It's a real issue. It sounded even more so when I talked with the Mexican foreign minister and the minister of economy in Mexico. They have a grave concern about who's coming across their southern border. And again, they highlighted the opportunity for us to cooperate on a security basis, again, with training, with technology, with equipment. These are ways to help them address the problem. But the most clear and urgent problem is dealing with our own border to stop sending the wrong messages that are encouraging this sort of behavior. And what's happening, particularly in Mexico, is that with the movement of coyotes, the, the overwhelming force that's occurring at our southern border, that it's creating an opening for the cartels to move even more drugs, more sex trafficking, more contraband across our borders. The cartels are getting larger and more powerful by the day. And it's making it that much more difficult to manage the situation in Mexico, in Guatemala, and other countries in that region. So. I would look forward to working with you on this grave national security crisis, and I hope that you'll commit to do that with me. Thank you, Senator. I look forward to working with you and the other members of, of this body, if confirmed, on these issues. 
Uh, I know that uh, colleagues within the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement and Population, Refugees and Migration, uh, under the leadership of Vice President Harris and with the uh, participation of Special Envoy Zuniga, are working hard on the issues that uh, you've discussed. We, we need to do more, but thank you for that commitment. And Ambassador Sasan, again, thank you for your service. I, still related to this area, what was very clear to me is that China is increasing the movement of fentanyl and fentanyl precursors into Mexico. These are getting manufactured and then trafficked across our border. It appears that all the cooperation between Mexico and the United States to interdict this has collapsed. I'd be very interested in your thoughts on how, in the position that you're, you're, you're hopefully going to go to, how you can increase our cooperation with Mexico to push back against China and their importation of this illegal drug that's killing our children. Good morning, Senator, and I share your concerns about these illegal drugs coming into our country as both a mother and a grandmother. Um, there is um, definitely an important role within the UN and multilateral space to push this U.S. priority forward, and if confirmed, uh, I look forward to consulting with you, working with you, and with stakeholders in organizations such as uh, the Universal Postal Union, because there is a postal piece of this, yeah. um, and the work that we've done um, on uh, some of the uh, standards uh, has actually made a difference in the multilateral sphere in enforcing uh, and moving these uh, norms uh, into the international space, as well as in uh, the UN body that deals with drugs and crime. I'd look forward to working with you, and I'll just add this. The Mexican authorities made clear to me that they don't have the technology to examine the cargo that's coming in from China. They felt like we could help them significantly there. You think about X-ray technology, heat sensing technology, the types of things that they could use to deal with the fact that China's become very clever hiding fentanyl and the precursors that are being shipped into their country and then being remanufactured. So I appreciate that commitment. Look forward to working with you, and thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Senator Kane is recognized and has graciously agreed to preside while I go to the Finance Committee. Um, after Senator Kane, I have no, at this point, no Republican colleagues who uh, have, have sought uh, recognition virtually or present. So it would be Senator Booker, who is with us virtually, and then Senator Van Hollen. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to the witnesses for your service and for your nominations. I want to ask three Western Hemisphere questions to Ambassador um, Nichols, to you about the Northern Triangle, and then I can't resist taking advantage of having the Haitian ambassador with us today to ask a question about Haiti, Ambassador Assistant. So Ambassador Nichols, Northern Triangle. We've seen real backsliding in the Northern Triangle on governments, transparency, corruption, violence, economic opportunity issues. Um, uh, recently, in both Guatemala and El Salvador, there have been sacking of judges and prosecutors who have been known for trying to prosecute corruption. Um, even more troubling in Honduras, the Honduran uh, election of 2016 was was a, uh, a sham and the OAS called for it to be rerun. Instead of supporting the OAS, the U.S. recognized the, the government of Honduras. And what did we get for it? What we got for it was the government canceling um, transparency initiatives, canceling anti-corruption initiatives, and now uh, the president of Honduras is implicated in a couple of high-profile drug, drug smuggling prosecutions in the United States. 
Um, obviously, if we're going to try to deal with this migration problem, one of the key pillars to it is strengthening governance, security, transparency in the Northern Triangle. Um, I suspect that there will be a request that we invest funds to do that, and I want to be supportive. But how can we invest funds to promote those ends when the governments um, in the Northern Triangle are often the, the, the causes, or at least in some cases, the causes of the problems rather than the solutions? Thank you, Senator. Uh, it's not enough to win office democratically. Uh, people have to govern democratically. And central to that is the importance of the separation of powers and a strong independent judiciary. And that's something, if confirmed, uh, that I will argue for vociferously uh, with our partners throughout the hemisphere and particularly in the Northern Triangle. Uh, we have programming that has been successful uh, around the world in strengthening the justice sector and we need to uh, press forward with those efforts, um, particularly in the Northern Triangle countries. Corruption is a noxious influence uh, in that region. Uh, in that part of our hemisphere, uh, and we need to leverage the tools that you've given us uh, to call out those corrupt actors who are preventing uh, the course of justice from flowing properly. Uh, we also need to leverage our development assistance and our multilateral partners uh, to ensure that the, uh, the institutions are built and people get uh, the support that they need so they're not attracted to populist and easy solutions that quickly turn to ashes in their mouths. Mr. Ambassador, I think all those are the right answers, and I also think they're the things that we've tried to do for years with very little effect. So I hope we, I hope we will not be in a groundhog day of repeatedly doing something and, and seeing it not work. Let, let me make one point on economic uh, opportunity uh, in the region. Um, again, we would want there to be stronger economic opportunities so people could stay, but how do we invest in stronger economies with governments that haven't proven to be reliable partners? I have an idea. U.S. employers employ a lot of people in the Northern Triangle, in the retail sector, in the textile sector. Rather, if we're going to try to increase economic opportunities, I, I, I would hope State and Commerce and others, Vice President's office, would pull together American employers who employ folks in the region and say, for example, what could we do as policy that would make you hire and invest more in the Northern Triangle. I'll give you an example. There's probably a couple hundred thousand textile workers in the Northern Triangle who are employed by American firms. Um, this is just a brainstorm. But if we were to say, for example, the purchase of PPE during a pandemic was revealed to be a critical national security issue, we should only buy PPE that's American-made or that's made with American product in nations with whom we have free trade agreements. That would pull a huge part of the PPE supply chain out of China and it would give a strong preference for the production of PPE in the Northern Triangle, which is produced with American cotton in factories in that region. Something like that would lead uh, to significant economic expansion or opportunities there. So I, I hope as we focus on economic opportunities, get the advice of the American companies that are already there. Ambassador Sisson, there's this, you know, obviously huge challenge in Haiti, deep unrest over the term of the president, and a five-year term, but there's huge unrest over when did it start. What is the U.S. doing to try to uh, help solve this dilemma and, and pave a way for a, a less corrupt um, uh, Haiti going forward? Good morning, Senator, and good to see you again. Uh, the U.S., and I will say as the 
sitting ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Haiti, we, we've been really urging um, all stakeholders, so the political actors, uh, the economic leaders, civil society leaders, to come together and work in an inclusive manner uh, to reach um, an accord that will serve the Haitian people. And I say this because the um, political impasse has had an impact over the last uh, two years uh, on the security situation. We see increased gang violence. Um, have had uh, this has had a, a, a negative effect on on the economic side, including economic development side. The focus has got to be, I believe, on rule of law, combating corruption, promoting justice sector reform, and moving ahead uh, on insisting that these overdue legislative elections, which should have been held in late 2019, do move ahead. The president has been ruling by decree because there is no legislature. So to get a president out of ruling by presidential decree, there need to be free, fair, and credible legislative elections later this year, as announced by the government of Haiti, followed by a presidential election so that at the end of the sitting president's term, there is an elected president to uh, take his place. Uh, the, and th thank you, Ambassador. I'm over my time, and I need to gavel myself out of order. Uh, and But thank you for that answer. And if I could uh, now turn, I believe Senator Cruz is on his way, but I believe Senator Markey, we, we are going in seniority, and you're up next. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, Ambassador um, uh, Nichols, uh, thank you for your service uh, over the years. I want to talk a little bit about climate change and the, um, <clears throat> the United States government and its, um, its ability to use global Magnitsky uh, to strike back at those who are committing crimes against uh, environmental uh, defenders. Uh, I know that you have experience in working uh, on these issues. So could you please tell us what you believe we can do as a country um, to uh, counter environmental human rights violations uh, uh, in the Western Hemisphere? Uh, because clearly um, we are at a tipping point and we have to make sure that we're using all of the influence of our government. Thank you very much, Senator. It's a complex question. I'll touch on a, a few examples. For example, if you are dealing with a company that is illegally dumping mining tailings in a river, uh, suborning local officials, uh, and uh, improperly taking uh, resources out of a nation, uh, that seems to me like an, an example where you could uh, leverage uh, the full range of anti-corruption tools uh, in response to uh, illegal uh, mining practices. Uh, in Peru, artisanal uh, and illegal gold mining was a huge problem and linked to narcotics trafficking. And when I was ambassador there, we worked intensively uh, on leveraging uh, law enforcement tools uh, against those responsible, especially in that nexus of narcotics and illegal mining. Yeah, gold mining, logging, wildlife trafficking, uh, environmental degradation, uh, all of that. Um, I've introduced uh, 
legislation, the Targeting uh, Environmental and Climate Recklessness Act. And it's just to reinforce the reality that all across these countries, brave climate defenders in Central and South America are risking their lives peacefully in order to ensure that um, these carbon intensive industries and uh, unsustainable business practices are wreaking havoc on local communities. And what my legislation would do is it would give the United States, give you the ability to target foreign individuals and companies engaged in destructive climate actions to ensure that existing human rights and corruption sanctions under global Magnitsky are used to strike back at those committing crimes against environmental uh, defenders. Uh, can I just follow up, just looking at the Amazon, if if I may, uh, and uh, uh, and the degradation of the of that forest, which are, as we know, the lungs of the planet. Um, how can we better work to uh, prioritize its protection uh, with the countries that, that it spans across in South America? In your opinion, yeah. Mr. Ambassador. Thank you very much, Senator. I think uh, engaging with the key Amazon nations, starting with Brazil, but also uh, Peru, Ecuador, uh, Bolivia, uh, that is uh, crucial. Uh, our diplomacy can have an important uh, effect on their policies. Uh, I know Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, Kerry, is, is deeply engaged in that exercise. Programmatically, uh, we can leverage our, our development uh, assistance uh, on the, the issue of climate, particularly on the protection uh, of, uh, of forests uh, and uh, rainforests in the region. Uh, we also need to think about uh, how do we leverage our trade agreements, which include environmental provisions, uh, to protect the environment. And if confirmed, I look forward to working with you on these issues. Thank you, sir. And uh, just move, moving to uh, Colombia quickly, if I could. Uh, I'm very concerned about the escalation uh, of violence in Colombia. Uh, my question to you is what do you believe we should be doing? What steps should the United States government be doing in order to use our political influence to decrease the, um, the, uh, uh, that violence and the uh, suppression of ordinary citizens in that country? The situation in Colombia um, is a complicated one. Colombia is a, a long-term ally of the United States. We need to be engaging with President Duque, as I know our ambassador and, and uh, key leaders in the administration are. Um, one, to work to de-escalate the challenges. Two, to address the uh, economic crisis caused by the pandemic, which uh, sort of was one of the reasons why the fiscal package that President Duque introduced was introduced. Uh, and three, uh, to prioritize getting back on track to implementation of the 2016 peace agreement in Colombia. And if confirmed, I look forward to working uh, towards those goals. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you both for your service. Thank you. Uh, Senator Van Hall. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and, and Ranking Member. And again, congratulations to both of you on your nominations. Um, Ambassador Sisson, in my introduction uh, this morning, I mentioned your experience in the area of international humanitarian relief. Um, and in your new position and confirmed, you'll be a key player uh, in that arena. Uh, now, I support an immediate ceasefire in the fighting uh, between Israel and Hamas. But whenever the rockets and the bombs stop falling, we will have a humanitarian disaster in Gaza. As you well know, there was a humanitarian crisis in Gaza before the fighting started 
and now it's much worse. We all know that Hamas is a terrorist organization that controls Gaza. We also know that Israel has the right to self-defense. And I am glad that the United States and this committee have assisted Israel in the development and the deployment of the Iron Dome, which has intercepted thousands of Hamas rockets. But I also think that the United States and the international community needs to do everything we can when the fighting stops to assist the millions of innocent Gazans who are trapped there and have nothing to do with Hamas. So my first question is a simple one. Do you agree? Yes, Senator, I certainly share your concern about the uh, human suffering associated with this outbreak uh, in violence. And I, I do believe that uh, providing humanitarian assistance uh, to the Palestinian population uh, with, uh, again, all the transparency, accountability, and oversight built into that, uh, while maintaining uh, our longstanding security relationship with Israel is in the U.S. interest. Well, thank you, Madam Ambassador. Just to, to give an extent of the challenge we're going to face with the international uh, community. This is, uh, I'm just quoting here from the New York Times report today in terms of the humanitarian crisis. Uh, the fighting has destroyed 17 hospitals and clinics in Gaza, wrecked its only coronavirus test laboratory, sent fetid wastewater into its streets, and broke water pipes serving at least 800,000 people. Sewage systems inside Gaza have been destroyed. A desalinization plant that helped provide fresh water to 250,000 people in the territory is offline. Dozens of schools have been damaged or closed, forcing some 600,000 students to miss class. And some 72,000 Gazans have been forced to flee their homes. Now, as, as your answer did and my question did, um, I'm focused now on post-conflict humanitarian relief to millions of people who have nothing to do with the conflict in Gaza. So do you agree that the United States and international relief agencies should insist that all parties involved give access, consistent with security requirements, but access to provide humanitarian relief in Gaza? Senator, the uh, issue, uh, yes, the issue of humanitarian access to provide needed food, medical items, particularly in this time of the COVID pandemic, is absolutely critical if confirmed. Uh, I, I would be working with the IO team and other stakeholders across our government and with UN partners, uh, not only to emphasize the urgency of working towards sustainable calm, but to ensuring that needed humanitarian relief with the built-in safeguards on transparency, accountability, oversight um, is delivered to the most vulnerable populations. Thank you, Senator. Uh, thank you, Madam Ambassador. Now, we also have an ongoing um, humanitarian disaster in Ethiopia. Uh, President Biden has called for a, a ceasefire uh, in that conflict. And we, the United States, are working with uh, international relief agencies to try to get uh, humanitarian uh, relief uh, to those there. This uh, committee two days ago had a, a briefing with Ambassador Feltman, and I had a follow-up conversation with Ambassador Feltman, the special envoy, yesterday. Can you just talk briefly about what we need to be doing and demanding in terms of providing humanitarian assistance in that conflict? Indeed, Senator. Uh, share your concern about the 
increasing food insecurity that we see. Uh, the UN and the International Organizations Bureau have an important role to play, and if confirmed, I would be working with a number of these UN agencies, including World Food Program and others. There are other associated human rights issues that I also believe the IO Bureau uh, would be working on, and if confirmed, <clears throat> calling out those who are perpetrating uh, these human rights abuses, these armed actors, widespread uh, reports of sex and gender-based violence and other atrocities. Uh, we would want to continue to speak with one voice at the UN Security Council on these issues, and I look forward, if confirmed, to working with Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield up there in New York, as well as the UN uh, agencies providing this humanitarian relief and using the appropriate space uh, to call out those armed actors and others perpetrating these uh, atrocities and abuses. Well, thank you. Uh, Senator Coons and I were in Sudan just a short time ago and visited one of the refugee camps that have been set up by uh, UNHCR. Um, and uh, I think it's important the United States continue to support that effort as well as the World Food Program. They're doing essential humanitarian work. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you both for your service. Congratulations on your nominations. Uh, Ambassador Sisson, let me start with you. Um, you have emphasized repeatedly that you intend to work to ensure that American taxpayer dollars are well spent at the UN and other organizations. But Americans are deeply concerned about the structure and the leadership of those organizations. Organizations like the Human Rights Council are hopelessly biased, uh, especially against the nation of Israel. And they're mendaciously sympathetic to countries like Iran that commit atrocious human rights abuses. It is no surprise why that's the case, given that those are the sorts of countries that make up a majority of the members of the Human Rights Council. To take another example, the UN's Commission on the Status of Women, the body's top legislative body on women's rights, recently elected Iran as a member. The Iranian regime, of course, enforces a broad array of gender apartheid policies. And concerningly, when asked, the Biden administration declined to con condemn that farce. I worry that no amount of financial accountability can reform these deeply problematic organizations as long as we allow them to be led by countries that are antithetical to their purpose. I'd like your opinion on that. How can financial oversight, which you've discussed, fix these deep problems, especially if, if the Biden administration is unwilling to speak out clearly against them? Senator, the issue of U.S. leadership is critical, I believe, uh, to addressing the need for reform. And I agree with you. There is a need for reform in many of these institutions. We need the U.S. back at the table pushing for these reforms. There is the issue, yes, of financial accountability, transparency, oversight. But there is also the issue of U.S. leadership building strong cross-regional partnerships and alliances so that our U.S. core values, protection of human rights, labor rights, 
economic transparency uh, are at the forefront. We need to remind some of our like-minded of what we all signed on to in the Charter of the United Nations because its foundational document uh, is strong on the human rights. On, on the Human Rights Council, Senator, um, I do believe that when we are at the table and as we are coming back to the, to the HRC, we have the ability to better defend Israel from delegitimization, from unfair targeting, from discriminatory uh, efforts, because we are there and we are present. We have seen when we are there that the number of items brought up under this uh, article Agenda Item 7, the only single country targeting of Israel you know, in, in that uh, space, uh, we're able to push back by coming back also, and of course uh, with our candidacy, uh, better able to create these cross-regional alliances to encourage more human rights, right-minded countries but, but does the hypocrisy of some of the worst human rights abusers being themselves members, d d d does that concern you? Indeed it does. But we have also seen, uh, Senator, that uh, the Human Rights Council has put the spotlight on Venezuela. The Human Rights Council has put the spotlight on China and the treatment of Uyghurs has put the spotlight on Hong Kong. So the, the issue of our people-to-people -people diplomacy creating these strong cross-regional alliances of like-minded countries to make sure that our core U.S. values are at the forefront, this is why we need to be at the table and back. Thank you. Ambassador Nichols, I'd, I'd also like to ask you briefly about Mexico. And our relationship with Mexico is complicated. They're a neighbor. We share a land border but they're also a country with its own interest. And, and when it comes to foreign policy, we need to use all the foreign policy tools we have. Recently, the Mexican government has taken a range of steps to downgrade counter-narcotics cooperation with the United States. And in one incident, Mexico even released sensitive information that we provided to them in violation of the U.S.-Mexico Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. Uh, I've introduced legislation to try to address some of these concerns. But of course, there's an enormous role for the State Department to play in conveying American concerns and priorities. Do, do you also share these concerns with Mexico's behavior in connection with co cooperation with the United States and counter-narcotics and treaty violations? And, and, and how should we address those issues? Our cooperation with Mexico on uh, rule of law, counter-narcotics, uh, justice issues is vital. Uh, it's long-standing. Uh, I had the pleasure of working on those issues when I was Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement. If confirmed, I look forward to engaging proactively with the Governor of Mexico uh, on our security cooperation. Uh, it's vital for both of our nations. Uh, Mexican cooperation uh, is something that we need uh, and they need. Uh, the Challenges, as was discussed, in terms of things like fentanyl and precursors, um, other uh, opiate trafficking into the United States, um, illegal activities on the border, 
Uh, we need each other to resolve those. Uh, and I look forward to working with our uh, law enforcement colleagues within the U on the U.S. side, with our embassy law enforcement working group in Mexico City, uh, and with Mexican officials, if confirmed, uh, to press forward to ensure uh, the highest level of cooperation, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I, we normally don't have second rounds, uh, but uh, I understand Senator Haggerty, so I'm going to extend the courtesy to you. I appreciate it, Mr. Chairman. And Senator Kane, I'm actually following up on a point that you raised. If I could borrow you for two minutes. Um, but I just wanted to add a comment that Senator Kane in, in, inspired. In my recent visit to Guatemala and to Mexico, uh, one thing that was clear to me that they were very interested in cooperating on was the fact that we're working very aggressively to reshore businesses from China. We're all very concerned about security of our supply chain. Those companies that are coming back to the United States, I want to get every job I can. Let me be clear. I want every one of those jobs in America that I can get. But to the extent that they're not coming back to America, rather than have them go to some other Southeast Asian country, why not find a way to work together to bring them into our hemisphere and to bring them to our friends there who need the economic opportunity, which this may help stem some of the root cause. I don't want to overlook the immediate concern. We have to fix the border crisis now. But mid and long term, there's a real opportunity here. Leadership cited CAFTA as a way to address this. You wisely brought this up, Senator. And I think taking a look at CAFTA, which actually presents now some restrictions and some constraints on what they can do, all of those constraints are being actually picked up by China right now because they're not part of that free trade agreement. We need to look very aggressively at what we can do with the FTAs that are in place, what we can do with economic development on a joint basis. I think that the United States can do a great deal to help these countries improve the rule of law and create the proper constructs. Again, we have the mechanisms to help them with infrastructure because of the various funding mechanisms that exist here in Washington and elsewhere. But creating that economic opportunity and seizing this trend right now coming from China is something that I encourage you very much to focus on. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. I've confirmed. I look forward to working with you on that. Thank, thank you, you, Senator Kane. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, one or two final questions. Uh, Venezuela, uh, despite the recent charm offensive, and that's what I consider it, um, the fact remains that Nicolas Maduro is a brutal dictator whose regime has committed, from my perspective, crimes against humanity, perpetrated fraud in the country's presidential legislative elections, responsible for Venezuela's massive humanitarian crisis. So I, I first of all, want to commend the president, uh, President Biden, for providing TPS for Venezuelans. Uh, but with Venezuela descending into a failed state status, um, I know that interim President Guaido and a coalition of democratic actors are pushing for comprehensive negotiations, both presidential and, and legislative ones, uh, as well as a return to democratic governance and increase aid to address the humanitarian crisis. Uh, so, Ambassador Nichols, uh, isn't that something that we should be able to get our arms around and supportive of and seek an international mobilization for a simple proposition? internationally supervised, uh, fair and free presidential and legislative elections? Mr. Chairman, uh, I agree that's something that the international coalition should be focused on. Our multilateral partners uh, play an important role. Uh, as you wisely state, the Maduro regime's goal is to delay, um, to deflect, uh, to distract. 
Uh, and I think uh, cognizant of that, uh, we need to take an approach that limits the regime's ability to do those things. Uh, and uh, as I said earlier, uh, our multilateral partners are a vital tool in that regard. Uh, but the protagonists of this need to be the Venezuelan people and the Venezuelan opposition uh, uh, led by interim President Guaido. Mm -hmm. uh, you're familiar, or maybe I should, I should add, are you familiar uh, with the roles that, uh, for example, Russia, China, and Turkey are playing in Venezuela? Russia, not only through its uh, uh, entity there that they, they use, uh, uh, for what I call mercenary soldiers, but also I, I hope you're familiar with reports of Russia taking out gold bars uh, out of Venezuela uh, and part of the national patrimony going to Russia. Um, the realities uh, of Turkey's banks uh, being used to flush the cash out of Venezuela and try to evade our sanctions. Are, are you familiar with those uh, elements? Yes, Mr. Chairman, uh, and uh, the uh, broad efforts by China, Russia, Iran, Turkey, others to work around the sanctions uh, regime that exists is um, deeply worrisome. And I think that the, uh, those of us who wish to see democracy uh, in Venezuela need to uh, aggressively um, challenge those actions uh, and work to ensure that uh, the profits of their criminal activities are not returned to the regime. Thank you. One last question for you. President Bukele in El Salvador. We had President Bukele here. We met with him uh, bef after he was elected, but before he took office. He said all the right things then. He's done all the wrong things since then. Uh, his firing of the Attorney General, his elimination of the, all of the judges of the Constitutional Court, have all the elements of a massive power grab consolidation in an autocratic way. Uh, you know, he, he probably thinks that if we don't just go along with him, he'll turn to China. Uh, how should we face uh, uh, the challenges there? Because I think beyond El Salvador, it's going to send a hemispheric message that's very bad if we don't, uh, you know, stand up for the principles of uh, observance of the Constitution, rule of law, and other elements? Uh, it's, as I said, uh, Mr. Chairman, it's not enough to win office democratically or win elections democratically. Uh, our friends uh, and our rivals uh, need to respect the rule of law and govern democratically. We need to hold them to account when they fail to do so. Um, El Salvador is a country that's been a long-time ally. I served there from 1991 to 1993. Um, we as a nation have sacrificed much and provided a great deal of assistance to El Salvador uh, to try and put it on a path towards success. Uh, and we need to use all of the tools that we can to ensure that El Salvador remains uh, on a forward path and that the challenges that it faces can be overcome. And I look forward to working on those issues if confirmed. Mm -hmm. And finally, uh, Ambassador Sisson, I don't want you to feel that I have no affection for your position. Uh, so um, uh, our legislation that Senator Risch and I put together on a bipartisan basis here, passed the Committee 21 to 1, the Strategic Competition Act, creates a special representative for advancing U.S. leadership in the United Nations. That person would be responsible for, among other things, 
promoting U.S. leadership and participation in the U.N. system with a particular focus on issue areas in which authoritarian countries are increasing their influence and steering the U.N. Uh, agenda. Uh, we're alarmed, as you've heard here from several members, about the increasing influence and role of authoritarian countries in U.N. bodies. Uh, what's, what's your assessment uh, as to how we can best counter those efforts? And I know that uh, there has been um, a, 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 within your uh, uh, department to be uh, a section that has been created. How do you see uh, the role uh, of um, this uh, special representative uh, playing within it? Thank you, Chairman, for this question. And also thank you to the members of this committee for the bipartisan uh, focus uh, on uh, this need for the U.S. to engage vigorously in this strategic competition. And if confirmed, this is at the top of my agenda. Uh, indeed, the International Organizations Bureau is in the process of establishing and launching a new multilateral strategy and personnel office. Uh, you mentioned the special representative uh, position, and I look forward, if confirmed, to working with all stakeholders uh, in this space. The special representative, the I.O. Office of Multilateral uh, Strategy and Personnel, what are we going to focus on? A, making sure that we get independent, qualified U.S. candidates or like-minded candidates, if there is no U.S.-appropriate uh, individual, into these top U.N. leadership positions. This is critical. Uh, running uh, the State Department and, and the Secretary of State have uh, put their weight behind, for example, an excellent uh, U.S. candidate at the International Telecommunication Union. Focused on that. Issue of candidates. Long game. Looking ahead at investing in the U.N.'s Junior Professional Officer Program one to two years, having young Americans gain this experience and then be set up for mid-level and beyond positions to bring in our core U.S. values, adherence to democratic norms, protection of human rights. Uh, China uses this program extensively. We need to be in there. Uh, work with our embassies abroad, our, our ambassadors and chargés, our USAID missions, to make sure we're looking into the weeds as well. We do not want to see UN agency documents coming out of these field offices that have Belt and Road Initiative or Communist Party of China language in their strategic program strategy documents out in the field. We need to be alert to this. And I would add uh, to this list of priorities uh, preserving uh, the space uh, for Taiwan's participation at the expert technical level uh, in the World Health Assembly, which is coming up next week, uh, up at ICAO, the International Civil Aviation uh, Organization, and uh, at Interpol. These are transnational threats, global health security, uh, civil aviation safety and security, transnational crime, uh, Taiwan's experts' uh, input should be heard. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, and uh, strongly uh, support uh, your views on Taiwan being included at those levels uh, uh, internationally. Finally, for you, uh, it was reassuring to hear Ambassador Greenfield 
reiterate her commitment to countering anti-Israel bias and unilateral Palestinian actions in international fora and multilateral organizations like the UN and UN agencies. I think such a commitment is more pressing than ever as we search for ways to de-escalate the current conflict and return to a two-state solution process. Uh, uh, if confirmed, will you work to counter anti-Israel bias at the UN and other multilateral organizations? Yes, Senator, I will. I will push back if confirmed, as I have done in the past in many different uh, tours of duty against the delegitimization of Israel, unfair bias, uh, discrimination against Israel, anti-Semitism. Thank you. Thank Senator. you. Well, Senator Rich. Uh, with that, uh, we appreciate uh, your testimony. This record will remain open to business days. So, uh, Friday? Thursday. Close of business Thursday. Okay. I have to check with my ever ready staff. Uh, this record will remain open to the close of business on Thursday. Uh, there may be questions for the record that are submitted by members. I urge both of you to answer them fully and expeditiously uh, as soon as possible so that your nominations may be considered at a business meeting. And with the thanks of the committee for your presence, this hearing is adjourned.